Welcome to the Space Between podcast. I am William. And I'm Katie. And in this podcast, we talk about the complexities of life, faith in the 21st century, and everything in between. Often, that space between is where a lot of us find ourselves. We hope to provide a place where people can be honest and we can engage with one another with compassion wherever we may end up on our journey. Hello and welcome to the Space Between podcast. Today we have Joe Lumen on the podcast. Thanks for coming on today, Joe. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here and have a good conversation. Yeah, it's going to be fun. So for those who haven't heard of you before, who haven't engaged with any of your content, do you want to first of all just start by telling us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and a little of your faith journey as well? Uh, yeah. So I am a, I am a pastor, officially speaking, but um, reluctant uh, really now. I, uh, I was born and raised in Colombia, and then I moved to the U.S. to do an internship at a church. Um, I did that for two years and then I ended up getting hired at the church and I worked at the church for a little bit. And then I moved to San Diego, California to help with a church plant. So, um, and then I was hired there too. I got, uh, ordained. I then got my master's degree. Well, not then before I got my master's degree in ministry and theology, got ordained and then worked for this church for about 10 years. Um, but I was uncomfortable with a lot of the things and practices uh, inside of the church. I was uncomfortable with a lot of the theology and there was no room for questions. There was no room for discomfort. Um, there was just a lot of, you know, just this is how things are done. And if you don't get it, then you are either immature in, you know, literally immature or spiritually immature, which whatever that means. Um, and so I ended up just walking away. I, I, quit my job and I, you know, I quit everything because I didn't think I was going to be able to get a job anywhere else, especially as a woman, uh, considering so many churches do not hire women anyways. And so I started just writing a lot of my thoughts and the things that I was learning in social media and my social media accounts started growing a lot. And then I decided that I wanted to just have these conversations publicly um, about theology, toxic theology and abusive, harmful ideologies that are so deeply entrenched in the evangelical fundamentalist Christianity world. Um, so that's what I do now. I basically have a lot of conversations about toxic theology, abusive theology, and more importantly, how we can divest from all of those toxic ideologies so that whatever spirituality we have left and whatever spirituality we want to um, align with is not harmful. And even beyond spirituality, whatever beliefs or lack of beliefs we have um, are not harming any people group. So, so that's what I do. I have conversations about being non-harmful people. Yeah, those conversations are so necessary. I'd love to clarify because I, I don't think from a couple of podcasts I've listened to with you on them, I've, I've not heard you speak about this. But um, so you moved to the States when you were coming to do Bible school, was that right? Or to do seminary? Is that correct? No, I came that? to the States to do an internship. Yeah, it was an internship at a, at a church and the internship included classes with Oral Roberts University. Okay. So I was taking classes with Oral Roberts University at the same time that I was doing the internship, which meant literally just working for the church. Um, but I came and I, my intent was to get my master's degree. I had already graduated from my, like I already had my bachelor's and I needed my master's. So I was going to do a two-year internship and get my master's and then go back home. Um, but that didn't happen. I stayed. I mean, and I stayed not for religious reasons or anything like that. I got married and then ended up staying. Yeah. And was there like a, a very noticeable difference from like church in Colombia to America? Or did you see some of maybe the aspects of toxic theology maybe being passed on through American influence in church while in Colombia? Yeah, for sure. The, yeah. the influence is all there. Um, the church that we were most acquainted with in Colombia um, and the church where my parents were, you know, my parents and my sister were still there when I was here in the U.S. So they were not just participating, like not just attending, but like full on participating, like leading ministries and the whole shebang um, was from was it started by Australian missionaries. And they the, the, the lead pastor was trained at Christ for the Nations here in Dallas. Uh, so, I mean, the, the influence of 
um, what I call white theology, white supremacist theology was all there. And so the behaviors were very different, even though some of the cultural implications and some of the uh, cultural aspects of how they practice their faith was a little bit different, but the theology was all the same. So we know that Christians have a very like broad range of views and beliefs all the way from the beginning of Christianity right up to now. Um, I would love to know what you find valuable about the label Christian. You mentioned there that officially speaking, you're a pastor, albeit reluctant, reluctantly, but uh, how would you define Christianity? Um, what does that look like? Do you still label yourself yeah. Christian? I do. Yeah, I still label myself a Christian. And yes, Christianity doesn't have, uh, I mean, even though people want to believe so that, you know, Christians all agree on some things, and then that means being a Christian, there is no such thing. Christians have not agreed on anything, except for there is a, there is a divine, there is a God, and Jesus was important. That's basically all they agree on. Everything else they don't. And even their definition of God uh, varies <laughs> from different groups. So, and the, the reason why Jesus is important varies too. Like there is really no agreement. There is no consensus. Um, for me, being a Christian means following the Christ. And the Christ is a consciousness, really. It's not a being. It's not a deity. It's not Jesus. It's a consciousness. And it's this consciousness that centers everything on love God, which means loving divinity, loving the divine, which goes beyond a being, really. It's not a being. Um, and loving others, loving your neighbor as you love yourself. And this is all deeply connected. You know, these two, two statements are deeply connected because if we are divinity, if we hold the divinity within us too, each one of us, um, then loving God and loving others as we love ourselves is loving divinity is loving ourselves. And, you know, there is, they are just so connected. And so for me, it's more a framework of um, how to lead my life and how to fight for justice and how to um, fight for justice, not just societally for everyone, for all the marginalized, but fight for justice for me too. You know, what does it look like to be just to me and to be my most authentic self, my most healed self? So to me, Christianity continues to have value because it led me to these conversations of liberation, which is liberation, not just personal liberation, but societal liberation from systems of oppression. And it has, and then we have these conversations of, you know, justice and goodness and, um, love and beauty and all of that for me is connected to Christianity. So I don't, I haven't given up on the label, even though my understanding of Christianity and my understanding of theology is very unorthodox because I claim that you don't have to be orthodox to belong. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting when you're inside the evangelical church, there's this set narrative that's so, so simplified of, well, Jesus came, he died, and it was to make sure that God's wrath was appeased. And then from there, there's right. the early church. And then there's basically this just big blank period. And then the Reformation, and then America, and then here we are. Right. <laughs> and that's essentially right. uh, the story of Christianity for much of evangelicalism. And it just seems so silly. I know that for me, having come and come out of that and then started studying theology after that, looking into it, looking at church history, it just seems so, so absurd. And yeah. I still see people, even people recently who consider themselves to be intellectual within the evangelical world, who seem to claim that there's this consensus within church history that exists. Right. And, and I think that brings on to us on to a very important conversation which is about power dynamics and theology because it seems mm -hmm. that they're trying to hold on to the power that's been there historically for straight white men um so right. those who often accuse others of heresy assume that their theological position is the accepted or authoritative position and in many right. cases these are straight white men so what are your thoughts on these power dynamics and how we tackle them yeah, you know, that's the thing that uh, people talk about how Christianity has always been harmful. Um, and I, I agree. However, that is not all Christianity has been. Christianity married to power has always been harmful. Christianity in the hands of the powerful has always been harmful because anything can be used as a power of, as a weapon of oppression, even if it was meant to be a tool of liberation, which is what I argue Christianity was meant to be a tool of liberation for the most oppressed. And 
I mean, and, and that goes back to, you know, before it was even mentioned as Christianity, as a separate religion. Um, like the only reason it became Christianity is because there was a powerful man that, you know, had a lot of, like, I'm talking about Paul, like Paul decided to make it a different religion. And he was indeed a powerful man himself. Like he had some power in the system. He had um, knowledge and he had, he was charismatic and he had, he was a Roman citizen, like all of these things. And so I don't think he intended for it to become a, a, a weapon of oppression, but it definitely became that. So if you put these ideologies of divinity and holding divinity as final, like you know the final truth about divinity, and this is just the only way that you can know it, and you put that in the hands of really powerful people, then yeah, of course, you're going to oppress and you're going to harm people. And then Christianity becomes in 380 CE, uh, the most powerful weapon of oppression that we've had in the West for the last, you know, 16, 1700 years, because it told people, not only do we hold the divinity, if you don't hold it like we hold it, then we're going to kill you. We're going to murder you. We're going to demonize you. We're going to take away land from you. We're going to take away um, your own humanity from you. And we still see a lot of that happening. So when we talk about Christianity, people often tend to think about the religious far right mm -hmm. that has um, that has political power uh, and that is a whole bunch of white cisgender heterosexual men making decisions for all of religion and in the meantime dismissing too all of the religious expressions of Christians in the margins mm. you know the the black Christians and the indigenous Christians and the Ethiopian church and it, it dismisses all of that so the I mean, we have to name power dynamics. We have to talk about them. We have to explain them. And a lot of people I've noticed, I, I spent the whole entire weekend talking to atheists, which was a lot. Um, but a lot of atheists believe that, not a lot, but some atheists believe that they've walked away from Christianity. Therefore, they are non-harmful as atheists, as though power dynamics don't exist still because they are white and cisgender and male or, you know, or even female, but white and cisgender because they are able-bodied, you know? So if we don't talk about power dynamics, then we, we make, we simplify issues, societal issues, to just be like, oh, well, just don't be a Christian and everything is fine. Or, oh, just become a Christian and everything is fine. So we we have to stop simplifying conversations and instead elevate conversations and talk about power dynamics and talk about the intricacies of what it means to exist in this society in different identity groups, including Christianity, sure, but not limited to christianity yeah that's good it's even just a conversation of existing within the remnants of christendom if you want to call it that like right, the leftovers right. of multiple empires that have existed not just the roman empire but let's talk about the british right. empire let's talk about the modern american empire that exists all these different conversations right. that could go on and i think as well as interesting like you mentioned paul there a powerful figure but it doesn't take a lot when you attach the divine to something that has just the slightest potential to become oppressive, then it can take on all these different forms. Like I think of right. some of the texts that are considered to be genuinely Pauline, um, usually like uh, there's no Greek, there's no Jew, there's no male or female, all these sort of really liberating freeing texts that you read and then you see the things right. which are considered to be ascribed to other people and they uh, are saying stuff like wife submit to your husband and right that might have just been a conversation that paul had in a room with one of his followers but it's carried on to the next generation and then that's carried on to create this insane legacy of oppression and hurt over the centuries right. um i would love to know for you who has the authority to interpret scripture and tradition and why? Yeah, I think everyone, everyone. I think that we need to let everyone be able to interpret scripture, uh, whatever we call scripture too, you know, uh, because we limit scripture to the Bible, the Christian Bible too. Um, but I think that everyone has the authority to interpret it. Uh, anybody that is that wants to be honest about that interpretation, however, would defer to others too. Because I think that the intent, if you look at Judaism alone, uh, and even the beginning of Christianity, the intent was never for an individualistic 
interpretation of what these, you know, traditions mean and what these conversations mean. It was always about communal interpretations. What does it mean for us? It was never, what does it mean for me? It was always, what does it mean for us? What are the people that we want to be? How are we going to engage with our neighbors? Does that have individualistic implications? Yeah, of course. It, 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 it changes the lives of each one of us individually, but the conversations were supposed to be communal conversations. So I think that it is harmful to sit down and read all of these ancient texts and think, I'm going to a land to the right interpretation of these, because that was never the intent of it. And I mean, what's the point of that? If it's not as if it's not in regards to having a conversation of community, of having community, you know, what does it look like to have a community, and what does it look like to be the least harmful community we could be, the most um, equitable, the most helpful, not just to each other but to those around us. So I think interpretations of scripture and even interpretations of the historical, um, you know, the the, the historical implications of Christianity and all of that, the church, like the history, the history of the church. I think that these conversations should be community conversations, because if you sit down with, and, and by community, I mean beyond Christians, because if we sit down to have conversations about the implications of Christianity with just Christians, Christians are going to tend to let their biases affect that conversation. We've been great. We started hospitals, right? Uh, but if you invite Jewish people, Muslim people, non-religious people into the conversation, then they are going to be able to give us more um, depth to the conversation. So I think any conversation of scripture or religious texts, or if we want to understand the depth of what this is going to mean for all of us, then perhaps we should invite the more voices we can invite, the better. And if we can sit and, and listen and truly listen to the other, then because that's what I do. And the reason why Christianity continues to be a framework that I love and that I continue to align with is because when I when I listen to the stories of the others, then the interpretation of my own faith expression changes, you know, because then loving neighbor means loving Muslims and loving non-Christians and loving, you know, all the marginalized. So it changes as I am able to center the most marginalized and not center myself or the most powerful. Yeah. I find that even personally, that the best conversations that I've had about God, about Jesus, about everything to do with Christianity, I've been with my non-Christian friends. I think specifically of a time that I sat and some of my really close friends, they're Muslims and I stayed with them one night and we woke up and had breakfast together and we just sat for three, four hours just talking about God. And we were both almost in tears by the end of it, just by the oh, this real powerful that. sense of the divine being present with all of us. So I think it's really powerful what you're saying there about talking about the other and realizing that they're not really other, that they are with us right. that we're all in this together um one thing that i think would be good to clarify and to go on to next would be to talk about what toxic theology is and some examples of this yeah. maybe yeah so uh, the way that i define toxic theology is any theological framework that causes me to harm another person that causes me to remove their agency uh causes me to see them as less than um, causes me to cause any kind of harm to them. So toxic or myself, toxic theology can also be harmful to just myself. So I speak, for instance, of the idea of original sin. Like I think original sin is toxic theology, just the framework that we are all born sinners and filthy and gross. That's toxic theology. You know, that's abusive, harmful, toxic theology. Um, there is nothing redemptive about this idea unless you become a Christian and in their own small framework and accept that Jesus cleanses you from your sin. But even then you can still fall away. And even then, so all of that is toxic. It's just creating a dependence on an external being, creating a dependence on the church, creating a dependence on a pastor. Um, any theological framework that demands that you depend on another or that you defer to another all of that is just toxic theology, toxic, abusive theology. It's what I call, um, oh gosh, I forgot the word I use, predatory. It's predatory. Yeah, it's yeah, good. And often that toxic theology seems to go hand in hand with systems of oppression. So can you talk a little bit about that aspect of it and how we fight against those? Yeah. 
uh, it does. It Because um, this is the thing. If I tell you that I am better than you, you will laugh at me, right? Because I don't have proof of that. I don't, I can't like intrinsically, I'm not better than you. I'm just me and you are you. But if I tell you that that is not my belief, but what God says, then I have this stamp, God's stamp of approval that says, no, it's, I mean, it, it isn't her belief. God just said that she's better than. And so all of these toxic theology, they, they are really just ways of justifying systems of oppression. They are ways of justifying abuse. So if we talk about, for instance, just war theory, just war theory is started with Augustine uh, in the fifth century. And Augustine is talking about how sometimes war is justified by God. And he, he creates a certain amount of like, um, kind of checks, you know, like if it's all of these things, then it's justified by God because we are not killing to destroy. We are killing to end evil in the world. But what they call evil is humans, human beings that disagree with them. So now they create this framework later on, they create this idea of malicide, which is that is a different thing than homicide. So killing someone just to kill them or to defend yourself or whatever is homicide. But killing someone that is an infidel, what they called an infidel or a pagan, later on pagan became a bad word, but it wasn't a bad word before. Killing someone that is not aligned with Christianity was killing evil. It was malicide. And that was justified because you wanted to end evil in the world for the well being of the whole world. If we end evil, then it's better for the whole world. And you are going like people say like, yeah, but that was in the, you know, Middle Ages. That was all the way till the 11, 1200s. That doesn't happen anymore. That's untrue. Because what, how did the war in Afghanistan was, how was it framed? We're going to end the evil of Islam in the world. And they were calling all Muslim people evil. So all of these toxic theologies that we have been fed and given in the last 1700 years have implications in modern society today. You know, they have implications. All of our ideas of um, the criminal justice system that you have to, to punish another person, they are rooted in penal substitutionary atonement. Well, not necessarily penal substitutionary atonement, but in atonement theories that say, you know, evil is punished with hell. So if God can punish evil with hell, then it is right for us to punish someone that commits a crime with prison and even to punish them with the death sentence. It is right. It is, and that's the justification of abusing others without taking into account their trauma, without taking into account why they committed the crime, without taking into account that there is an entire system that has created um, such disparities in the world that some people have to steal to be able to survive none of that is taken into account so we're not talking about restorative justice but we say no criminal justice is good you know punitive justice is good because god uses punitive justice watch him he sends people to hell and so you you take all of these ideas and you switch them and mold them and bend them to be able to justify the horrific acts that you want to commit against another that has real implications in people's lives, right? Yeah. I mean, we see them every day, yeah. the implications. Yeah, we do. On the other side of that, then, what does non-toxic and decolonized theology look like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I love to talk about. Uh, it's, it's theology that leads you to um, a greater awareness, greater consciousness, to being closer to the most authentic version of yourself to loving people better, to loving yourself better, to being able to have healthier relationships with others, to be, being able to have a healthier relationship even with your own self. So when I talk about the Christ consciousness or the cosmic Christ or, you know, the, the idea of the universal Christ, um, that idea helps me. It helps me be a better human being. It helps me be, um, it helps me engage the other in respectful ways. It doesn't dehumanize me or dehumanize anybody else. The opposite. It reminds me that I have a human on the other side that regardless of their behavior, I have to remember their humanity and dehumanizing them. It's stripping them away from their divinity. And so all of that is not toxic theology. It's the opposite. It's theology and spirituality that is moving us together toward higher, greater consciousness, toward an understanding of society that is going to allow for us to eradicate, you know, systems of oppression and to minimize the amount of harm that we cause to 
to switch trauma, uh, not switch trauma, but to perhaps even have better ways of dealing with trauma, of handling trauma, um, giving people better mechanisms to be able to live, like not live with their trauma, but instead um, process their trauma. That's the word. It, it gives people, you know, this theology should give people better tools to be able to process their trauma. It should not instead traumatize them further. Um, so healthy decolonized theology is theology that allows for us to become the most authentic version of ourselves, not just individually, but collectively too. good and for anyone who was looking to try and understand how they could make their theology less toxic how they could decolonize their theology maybe they don't even see the ways that is toxic or see the ways that is colonized and all these different connections that exist and how they may be playing into systems of oppression and these power structures where's a good place for those people to start because it can seem very overwhelming at first when your eyes yeah. haven't really been open to it before. Right. Um, I honestly think that the best thing we can do is exactly what you said a minute ago is listening, listening to others, you know, having this curiosity, meeting people with curiosity, meeting those that have been deemed the other to you, um, meeting them with curiosity. And, and the good thing about, you know, the internet and social media right now is that we have the ability to sit down in conversations and nobody knows that we're there. Uh, we have the ability to have closeness to others that we would never before. And so if you think that if you've been indoctrinated into believing that gay people are sinful or that trans people are sinful, then start following some trans people, start following some gay people and not to talk, don't say anything, don't call them sinners, none of that, because the intent is to learn and listen. Uh, instead, come and listen. Listen about their lived experience. Listen about who they are, how they got to their to their conclusions, how they became the person that they are today, you know, how they had to fight against homophobia and transphobia. Um, and that that happened to me. Like, that's how I started changing my mind, too. It was in in listening to the lived experiences of people that were not that that were that had that I had been told were the other. Right. So I ended up in Turkey, the country, and I sat down with all these Muslim people having the most beautiful conversations about divinity, having the most deep conversations about prayer, because this idea of prayer as more of self-awareness came for me from Muslim people, not from Christianity. So Muslim people talking about just prayer as self-awareness and as this conversation with yourself to be able to unearth your own trauma and your own pain. They didn't frame it that way, but now I know that. Um, to be able to unearth their own trauma, their own insecurities, the things that are not aligned with their divine, with the divine in them. And I love that. And I love seeing their commitment to prayer, the commitment to being aligned with the true self, you know? So that's what they pray. Like they told me that we pray so often because we need to align with our true self often throughout the day. And that's true for me too. I have to align often. And um, so these, this proximity to Muslim people, I, I remembered all the things I had been told about Islam, all the things I had been told about Muslim people. And I realized that none of them were true. It was the absolute opposite. They were the most kind, the most like this commitment to being um, open with their faith, with their lives, to opening their homes to me. This woman who was a um, she was a refugee in Turkey at the time. She was from Iraq, I think, or Iran. I don't remember right now, but she was a refugee and I'm pretty sure it was Iran. Yes, uh, Iran. So she was a refugee and she didn't have much, but she took her earrings off and gave them to me because she wanted us to remember our time together. She wanted me to remember our time together. And so she wanted to give me a token uh, of our time together. And that meant taking her earrings, the only earrings she had that I'm sure meant something to her, to me. And I still have them and I love them and I never wear them because they feel sacred. Um, and, and this is how she was treating me. This is how she, and she saw in me divinity too, regardless of my faith adjacency. 
And so if people want to really decolonize and not cause harm, then what you need to do is listen to those that Christianity has constantly harmed. Mm -hmm. Because if you keep listening to those that are not harmed by Christianity saying, no, we don't cause harm, it doesn't cost them anything to say that, right? If I am a cis, white, heterosexual man that has money, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't live in poverty, then me saying Christianity never causes harm doesn't cost me anything because it's never caused me harm. A cis white heterosexual man that lives in the West that has some sort of money so that he can eat every meal has never been harmed by Christianity. That doesn't mean, however, Christianity has, doesn't, hasn't caused harm to others. So listen to those who have been harmed by Christianity. And in this day and age, that's really easy. There are so many uh, pages that are deconstructing publicly. There are so many stories that are being told publicly. So being able to listen to those, not with skepticism, not with the, the framework that you've already been given, like they are just uh, bitter or angry. They are just looking for perfection. They are none of that. They just have a problem with forgiveness. Like ignore all of that. Just listen. Because we don't have a problem with forgiveness. We're not bitter. We are probably very angry because people that have been abused are right to be angry. Uh, But listen, just because you see the humanity in us, because we are beings with agency that are smart and brilliant, really, and that have something to say, and perhaps you have something to learn. So that's what I tell people. The first thing to do is not so much, I mean, yes, read the books, all of that, you know, and I have lists of resources all over my social medias. But more importantly, listen to people. Listen, really listen. Don't sit down to refute them, to fight them. If you really want to understand, then sit down to listen. Yeah, I think that's so true because listening humanizes. And I I think of, um, I can't remember where I read it, but the way that a lot of Christians will often refer to the Bible as inspired or like when you actually look at that meaning, that is breathed into by God. And I can think of one other really, really clear example in um, the Christian Old Testament and the Hebrew scriptures that refers to God breathing into something, and that's humans. <laughs> and I think that right. like, there's no clearer word from God than to sit down with another person and to hear their story and to listen to their experience. Right. And I think that is just so incredibly powerful. I think of after leaving evangelicalism, the first time that I sat down with a trans person and just listened and how powerful that was for me and how healing that was for me. And I remember sitting down with uh, my gay and lesbian friends who, and just spoke about the ways that potentially my theology had caused harm, not to try and make justifications or excuses for it, but just to be like, let's talk, Mm -hmm. let me hear it. And let me just apologize for what I've done and, and, and own it. So, uh, so, so powerful. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Yeah. There is no way we'll see people, mm-hmm. like see them. And, you know, one of the names of God in the um, Hebrew Bible is the God who sees, mm-hmm. right? Well, that was the name that was given to, gosh, I forgot her name. What's the name of the the concubine? Like she wasn't a concubine. She was a slave, really. She was um, the woman that was enslaved Hagar. by Abraham and Sarah. Hagar, yeah. Hagar. Yes, thank you. So that was a name for that that Hagar gives. He's the God who sees. And if if we believe in this seeing of the other, you know, like the only way you can see them is by actually sitting down to see them, not through your own biases and not through your own beliefs of them, not through the um, misconceptions that you may have about them, through the ideas that you have made yourself believe or that others have made you believe about them but to really honestly genuinely see them I want to see you and being seen in my opinion is one of the most beautiful acts of love that we can extend to a stranger you know I want to see you I don't want to fit you into my narratives but I want to actually genuinely see you and we live in a world where seeing another is not common we are too busy and we are too um honestly selfish that we don't sit long enough to see even I mean even between husband and wife or husband and husband or you know partners whatever um, we don't sit long enough to see the other like we live together we do life together we are busy together we figure out the children together we pay the bills together but I don't see you And that lack of seeing the other is the reason why we end up harming so many people as we move through the world. If we could just stop and see, really see, 
then perhaps we would cause less harm with our lives, with our choices, with our words, you know? Yeah, that's great. It's, it definitely seems like there's a tunnel vision there. Um, like you're just seeing through one particular lens and, and your particular lens when you're uh, considering another person. And I think that's why it's so easy for many people, not just within the evangelical church, but it does tie into the elements of toxic theology and everything else that we've been speaking about to um, make false claims about people. Um, I had a conversation with Will from Heretical Theology a few weeks ago, and the whole point yeah. of the conversation was to get to let's get beyond the caricatures of atheists that Christian apologists give, yes. and let's understand what atheism is actually saying and take it on as a valid and real critique and value it for what it is, and like. And and then the other is true. I mean, I, I to, I'm telling you, I spent the whole weekend talking to atheists that were doing the other thing the the caricaturizing of christians all christians are blanket statements it's like no and that is when you move out of christianity but don't dismantle the the ways in which you've been taught to think because of abusive abusive christian rhetoric and narratives so now you're an atheist sure but you continue to be harmful because you still caricaturize and still make blanket statements about entire people groups like you did when you were a christian about all muslims yeah well you know it's the same yeah it would be obviously yourself as having quite a large uh, social media platform sometimes that gets attention of some evangelicals who are very angry about everything that you say um even if they've not fully read or understood what you've said or even be at the stage of having that intellect to understand what you've said um yeah but i would love to know how can people in positions of privilege uh, of power that in these systems of oppression that exist within society how can they better tackle these things and help people who don't have those positions of privilege when it comes to fighting against toxic theology yeah well i i mean again listening is a big deal you know I, one of my main issues with evangelical pastors is that they don't listen they don't listen they rush so quickly to give you answers to give you advice to tell you what your problem is to solve your problems when some people don't need their problems solved at all uh, and they don't listen so if they could just start learning to listen that would be great and also setting up systems in their own lives where they are being held accountable by people that have less power than them and people that are able to see differently than them um, so if you you know if you are a white man then are you listening to women of color you know, because women of color will hold you accountable. Are you listening to trans women? Are you listening to trans men um, and allowing for them? Because people cannot hold you accountable unless you're willing to be held accountable. You know, accountability is something that comes from me. I want to be held accountable. Therefore, I allow for people to speak into my life. But if I don't want to be held accountable, it doesn't matter how much accountability people throw at me, I will dismiss it all. So how, what does your accountability look like? Do you have any accountability systems set up in your life? And how do you respond to accountability? Do, have you had any training in regards to accountability, to uh, accepting accountability? It's called accountability training. Because um, most people haven't. And we don't live in a society where, in the West, we don't live in a society where, we, where accountability is normal. It's actually the opposite. It's not normal. That's why people are passive aggressive. That's why people, you know, beat around the bush. That's why people prefer to end up in a relationship instead of having a conversation. Um, so uh, have you read and studied? Are you aware of your power? Being aware of your power and your privilege is a big deal. Like I'm deeply aware of my privilege. I'm deeply aware of the, the different aspects of my identities, the different identities that I hold that give me privilege in society. I'm aware of those and therefore I uplift and I magnify the voices of those who don't have my same privileges. Um, not only in my personal life, like the books that I read are I, I'm very particular about the authors because their lenses are going to affect what they are writing. So, you know, who am I reading from? Who am I listening to? Um, and at the same time, the people that I let speak into my life, I'm very aware that I want them to be people, like, and I pay them for their time, by the way, but I want them to be people that have um, less societal power than me. 
Some of them have more money. Actually, all of them, I think, have more money than me. <laughs> but um, but societal power that they cannot strip themselves of. You know, like money comes and goes. But your skin color, there's nothing you can do about that. Your gender, there's nothing you can do about that. Your sexuality, there's nothing you can do about that. So things like that. So I, I make sure that I surround myself by people that have different perspectives that think differently, that have different, and more importantly, that have different lived experiences, uh, and especially coming from those that have less power in society. Because if I center their voices, if I center their needs, then I'm going to be well too. Because if the least in society are well, which goes back to things that you find in the Bible, and you know, this shouldn't be hard. Um, if the least of these are well, then we are all well. If the least of these are eating, then the rest of us are surely eating too, because we weren't eating, like we never lacked food. So centering the needs of the most marginalized and listening to their voices um, is going to ensure that you are less harmful, but be unwilling to do that. And thinking that you have answers when you have not listened to the people dealing with the problems is going to ensure that you continue to cause harm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some of what you were saying there actually just reminded me of you when you mentioned accountability training, not really something that like I've heard of, but I can clearly remember the fact that the internship program that I did at the church that I used to attend had, it was a two-year program and on both years there was a whole course and segment on honour and on honouring authority and leadership and it, it literally just clicked for me of how that is literally just teaching to um, excuse those in positions of privilege for any uh, mistakes, anything that they do Absolutely. that's harmful. Um, yeah, that's literally just clicked for me with that. Yeah, it's the opposite of accountability. It's the opposite. Is hey, we are not going to be held accountable because we are the chosen of God, because you have to honor us, because we have been the anointed of God. We are the privileged of God. It's actually uplifting your privilege. And again, using toxic theology, using the idea that you honor me, not because I say that you should honor me, but because God says that you should honor me. And we never talk about the fact that the only reason that you're a pastor for half of them is because you have the right last name, the right gender, the right skin color, the right amount of money because you were born into the right family, you know, and all of this is in quotation marks, the right, the right, the right. Um, so they never talk about their privilege. They always talk about like, we just, you have to honor us because we are chosen by God. No, you weren't chosen by God. You were just born into certain families. And the reality is that the honor starts at the bottom. We honor the most marginalized because we don't honor anybody's humanity until the humanity of those that are the most marginalized is honored. That's it. So I don't have a responsibility to honor the president. The president works for me, <laughs> right? He has a responsibility to honor me. And when we switch that, then we make the privilege and powerful, have more privilege and power, and then not be held accountable at all. Yeah. And that doesn't work. And surely that's... We know that. Yeah, surely that's the, a big part of the message of Christianity as well. Like I'm reminded of that passage in Philippians that talk about that talks about Christ taking the lowest position. Um, yes. and, and it seems to like flip the whole honor, shame, eh, all of that on its head. It seems to just be the right. opposite way that if the divine is willing to take the lowest position, then maybe we need to learn to respect that too and honor those positions too. Right. We're talking about a man who was considered the Messiah right? Which was the king, which was the king to come, the one that was going to liberate them. And he chooses in his last hours, according to what we have of him, he chooses to wash the feet of his disciples, which is a big deal in that time. You know, touching somebody else's feet was a big deal. Their feet were gross. They, the way they walked, their, their, their roads, everything. And he chooses to wash their feet. And, it, and this is within the context of a conversation of this is what we do. We wash the feet of those we serve. We, and we serve everybody. And we wash the feet of those we serve. And then somehow pastors flip that and say, make sure that there is Perrier water in my office. And make sure that, you know, that you honor me and make sure that you just believe me. And when you hold me, and when I make a mistake, make sure that you extend grace to me. No, none of that is honor or love or care or Christ, yeah. to be honest. Yeah, I would love to just as we come to the end of it, I would love to talk about a practical, fairly relevant example 
of where those who have privilege and power are refusing to accept accountability um, and also aren't honoring those who are on the margins of society. And that's mainly in the rejection of the idea of critical race theory. So this is maybe just to get these ideas that we've been talking about, about toxic theology and all of that and making it practical for people and how that maybe plays out today. So um, it's came under a lot of criticism lately especially from those on the right. Um, I can think of specifically the example of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, and uh, denomination founded on slavery and the ideas of slavery and upholding that. Um, So could you give just a brief overview of what critical race theory is, uh, why there's been such backlash and maybe how some of these ideas come into it practically? Yeah. So critical race theory, just um, it's not very old. It started really in the 70s. And it was a conversation that a lot of civil rights uh, movement um, scholars were having about being able to have these uh, conversations and approach at social issues in a critical way, to think about all these social issues in a critical way, specifically about race and racism. Because we're talking that in the 70s, there is supposedly no segregation. Slavery has been supposedly, it has been um, abolished. And all of these things are happening where people are starting to negate the fact that white supremacy is still a reality and that, you know, there are race issues that we have to discuss. And so there is these conversations about like, I see no color, everybody's welcome. And so a lot of people that are, you know, especially black people, are saying, no, we have to have a critical look at how white supremacy is part of the society that we have today. Can we look at how there are there is systemic racism? It is not just about thinking that white people are less than, or I'm sorry, that white people are more than. Um, it's also the fact that now we have systemic racism that has seeped into all of the all different aspects of society. So what whether you look at the education system or medical system or whatever you look at, you know, the social justice system, I'm sorry, the uh, justice system, uh, the criminal justice system, whatever system you look at in our society, there is white supremacy embedded into all of that, uh, including religion too. And so so that's critical race theory, just looking a little bit deeper and to, into how um, there is systemic oppression in regards to race. And there has to be a relationship shift. There has to be a relationship shift between all of these systems and racial power. We have to look at power dynamics. What does it look, what does it mean to be black in this society? Because it means things. It's not the same to be white than to be black, whether you want to say that I don't see color or not. You know, we have to look at societally, what does it mean to be a black person in the US or in the West in general today? And so the reason why people fight these is mainly because they believe that critical race theory um, first denies that there is just a sin issue. So Christians talk about how, no, there is actually a sin issue. It's not that there is an embedded um, white supremacy in everything. It's just that there is a sin issue and people are sinners and they will commit sin uh, or they will be sinful, whatever. Um, And then the other reason they don't like it is because it talks about how we don't get to minimize anybody else. You know, there are different identities and we don't get to minimize anybody else's identity. And we get to recognize that systemically people are um, discriminated in society. It's not just individuals, it's at the systemic level. And they don't want to do that because they discriminate against people. I mean, religious, uh, the, the religious far right are the people that discriminate the most. They discriminate against women. They discriminate against gay people. They discriminate against trans people. They discriminate against people of color. They discriminate against non-Christians. They discriminate against basically anybody that doesn't look like them. And they just call all of that sin. They are just sinners. And that is pretty it's a really easy way to wash your hands off of the fact that you are an oppressor, you know? So they don't want to deal with the fact that they are oppressors and therefore they just deny critical race theory altogether. But the more that I read their arguments, the more that I just honestly don't even comprehend what's the problem. Like um, it's a fact, like systemic oppression is a fact. We see it. And the more that we keep calling these things sin, and because they think that the solution, they think that they have the solution for the world, which is make everybody Christian. We've tried that, you know, 
the, the English empire went pretty far into the world, making people Christians with the Spanish empire, with the Portuguese, you know, all these European countries moved all over the world, trying to make people Christians. And that didn't make the world better. It made it worse, way worse. Talk about all of the native people of the, of what we call now America. Is the world better for them today than it was in the 1500s? I, you know, in the like early 1500s or late 1400s. No, it's, it's worse. It's way worse. So, but it's easy to say, you know what, if we just make everybody Christian, critical race theory basically denies their main claim about Christianity. That is, if you become a Christian, everything will be better. It denies that claim because it's it's a claim that you cannot, it's not true. It's absolutely not true. It is not better. Life doesn't change if you become a Christian. For many people, it becomes worse, way worse. I am one of them. You know, becoming a Christian didn't make me better. It actually allowed for me to be abused and traumatized in new ways. That's it. So they fight critical race theory. And so long as they keep fighting it, we're going to continue to have issues with systemic oppression because you cannot fix a problem that you are choosing not to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that the pandemics also highlighted a lot of this and, and the pervasiveness of it as well. I think specifically of even the churches in, in Glasgow, where I am. And yeah. We were able to go on uh, the Sundays after the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, yeah. and many others as well throughout last year, where you were able to see the responses in real time and you could flick between churches like and actually see what are people saying. And yeah. I can think of the majority of the churches here that I'd, I'd looked at anyway, not for all of them in Glasgow, obviously, but the ones that I'd looked at that were evangelical, the majority were saying what you've said there it's a sin issue i know of right. one church that said right we need to take this seriously let's bring those who are people of color in our congregation and let's gather around them pray with them hear how we can support best and if they want to get involved in the education and actually talking about these issues then great if not then that's fine um but we're going to educate ourselves anyway and so they got into doing like a six-week course on james cone and liberation theology and and many others and that. praying around that stuff and i was like that's a, a good response that's a, a good place right. to start um but it was just sad to see that so many didn't seem to take that and and that has been highlighted in this way but i really appreciate everything that you've shared throughout this episode your perspective is is great i love it um so is there any final things that you would like to say on that happy no thank you for having me thank you so much for having me i think that we all have to do the work of ensuring that we are not harmful people mm -hmm. you know that we're not causing harm regardless of our faith adjacency or belief system or lack of belief yeah. uh, we all have to do the work of saying what does it look like for me not to harm another person yeah and if people are wanting to find you they want to read more of your stuff uh, where's the best place for them to find you anywhere on social media i'm i put everything out for free really um i i have some classes and stuff but that's different um but yeah you can find me on instagram and twitter and on tiktok lately yeah. which has been really fun for me to learn to do tiktok so yeah that's where you can find that's me cool. i still don't understand tiktok it's the one thing that's <laughs> aged me most through covid in the last year it's like yeah. i just no nope, i don't get it I, i'll watch videos happily <laughs> but making them and things i maybe i'll get there but not quite there yet yeah. but yeah thanks very it's it's a it's a lot of time it takes a lot of your time so you're fine <laughs> yeah oh i've got some time this summer so maybe that will be a summer project but there uh, there you go well, thanks again for coming on today joe i've really enjoyed this conversation thank you thank you for having me